all the leaves are brown and the skies are grey. And we're back for season two of Somewhere to Believe in, the podcast brought to you by Greenbelt Festival. We loved making the first season over the summer and we felt the love coming back too. Thanks. We enjoyed it so much that we thought we'd plough on and see where a second season takes us. Hang on, are we saying season? That sounds quite American. (laughs) This isn't Netflix, Paul. (laughs) Sorry. Yet. In series one, we talked with brilliant writers and thought leaders and we learned loads and we got heaps of inspiration. So this time around, we wanted to get together with some artists who we've loved having perform at Greenbelt to find out more about what makes them tick and how they're coping in light of COVID-19 when it's so hard to actually perform. I'm Catherine, the programme manager at Greenbelt and one of your hosts for the Somewhere to Believe in podcast. Hello, I'm Paul, the creative director of Greenbelt Festival and your other host for Somewhere to Believe in. Greenbelt's about making space for arts, activism and belief to come together from around the world and hopefully change it for the better. It's more than just four days in a field. It's a way of seeing, thinking, living. So if you love small talk and big ideas, this podcast is for you. And like Catherine said, each week in our second series, we'll talk to a brilliant guest artist about their life and their work. And with their help, we'll bring you timely, funny, provocative and above all, hopeful thoughts and ideas to keep us all going in these strange times. We'll also chat about all things Greenbelt, just like we would if we were in the office together. And we hope it almost feels like eavesdropping on the festival in a good way. Series two will take us up to Christmas our first Christmas in a time of COVID. And so we hope that our Somewhere to Believe in podcast can play a small part in helping you get there and get you through because we all need 2021 to be a whole heap different. Of course, we're calling our podcast Somewhere to Believe in because now, maybe more than ever, we all need that, right? And we really hope you enjoy it. So welcome back to Somewhere to Believe In and hello to anyone who's joining us for the first time. Back by popular demand. Can we say that? (laughs) I think we can. I mean... Prove us wrong. (laughs) Your mum wanted it back. (laughs) We'll just keep on coming back until you tell us not to. Um, These times, they they just rumble on and they they continue to be really strange, don't they, Catherine? I I thought that by the time we got to Series 2, if we did get to Series Mm. 2, then I thought, you know, things would be different by then. But they don't feel very different, do they? I think we got a taste of a little bit different. I had a little taste of freedom, I think, at some point over the summer. Um, But now it feels like, you know, winter's coming. Things are still a bit um, hairy and... You know, we don't know what Christmas is going to look like. It feels like it's going to be a bit harder. I feel like people are feeling it now going into the winter. Yeah, because when we first went into lockdown, it was we had that amazing um, stretch of weather at the in the early spring. There seemed to be a real sense of solidarity as well in the country, and there was this beautiful weather, and it, it felt as if yeah, we can do this, we can do this. But like you say, right now it's getting dark, it's getting colder, certainly getting a lot wetter. And it feels like this is going to be more difficult. I'd love to hear from people about like tips and advice of what to do. Because obviously I live by myself. So, you know, 
I would love to hear about what I should be doing through the winter to get me through. I need a bit of help. <laughs> I think there should be some sort of uh, rationing scheme because I wish I sometimes I could live by myself because I live with too many people. Um, so perhaps we could sort of do some sort of share, swapping sharing scheme where we allocated people out more more fairly across the country. <laughs> and I guess we're pleased to be back because what we want to do in part through this podcast is give people a sense of hopefulness, a sense of bigger stories and other stories and, and different lives and different experiences that, that we can dig into that can give us different perspectives and help us get through. <laughs> we're really fortunate we we are both working from home we can make this podcast from home um, we're really mindful of all those people whose jobs and work can has to continue for the sake of the rest of us um, you know all those frontline workers those key those key workers who we heard so much about in the first lockdown we really think of them as we go into this um, this difficult autumn and this difficult winter because for them it must feel very tiring and very relentless so all strength to all those people who keep our society going keep us looked after keep us safe all that sort of stuff we're thinking ahead to 2021 aren't we and we're being quite positive about it because now we're starting to make the festival for next year we're making plans we have to and the amazing thing as well is that people are buying tickets and so it feels you know it doesn't feel like business as usual but it does feel like we're still planning we're still dreaming you know we're still hoping to be back in that field and it feels like there's a whole bunch of people out there who want to be there with us because they're buying tickets and we want to say thank you uh, to all those who are buying their tickets now don't stop the dreaming exactly and we'd like to thank everybody who's helping us as a festival you know get through we've got our green bar angels and volunteers who are sticking with us and giving us all their support and um, we want to thank them for all that support and love anyway we on the eve of the u.s election uh we're really really pleased to be able to chat to lee baines of lee baines and the glory fires lee baines the third and the glory fires i should say and he's almost uh, been like a little secret uh that, that we've discovered hasn't he catherine yeah yeah he's he's definitely a greenbelt favorite artist he's he's one that we love programming in the office and our audience love in fact Lee Baines the third and the Glorifiers they're the only when they played at Greenbelt last that it's the only time that people have come up to me in the audience and thanked me for booking a band three people did it after they played and that's never happened to me before in the history of me programming stuff at Greenbelt and you know we like them so much that we had them back two years in a row they feel like a band that are doing everything for the right reasons in my point of view and, and you'll hear a little bit about it as lee goes on but you know with a lot of artists a lot of lead singers they might have a bit of an ego i guess that's really easy to have an ego when you're put in that kind of position of power um and you never see that with lee you never hear that with lee the reason he's doing playing music is for reasons that we want to support yeah i mean you've got to know him a little bit over the years that he's come to Greenbelt. Um, you were the one who discovered him and you even arranged for rehearsals for him and his band with Sasha from Pussy Riot so they could prepare for their amazing secret gig at Greenbelt um, in 2018, which was uh, still lives on in, in legend. But for me, the conversation that we're about to hear was just 
wonderful because I felt like I, I got to know him a little bit better and everything that we talked about and shared just really impressed me. I thought this is this is a, a, an artist that is in the absolute true spirit of Greenbelt. Um, and I, I loved I loved getting to know him a little bit better. And I hope that as you listen to this podcast, you know, you can have a similar enjoyable experience. Season one of our podcast turned out to be mainly sort of thinkers, writers, activists, leaders, thought leaders. That's not to say you're not all of those things. But in season two, we wanted to focus on artists because we just recognize that right now is a really difficult time for artists. And I'm sure it's the same in the States. But here in the UK, artists are having just a really really tough time right. and so we wanted to celebrate uh, artists that we love oh, and man. you were first on our list because we missed to get you in the, in the uh, season well i love y'all so it's an honor to um to be on here somebody posted a video from the last uh green belt we played at when we played with uh, sasha you know and uh from pussy riot and man it was just had, had me missing you guys really bad yeah, we actually played, um, we have a half an hour video of your set that someone recorded on a phone and we played it in our in our digital festival that we did this year and right. people loved it. I loved being there. I know we all did. This is a good consolation prize, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the real thing, but it's good. So um, I was at a, it was kind of like a music showcase thing in Brighton and I'd seen so many bands and I'd went gone to so many venues and I'd kind of got a bit tired of all and I decided just to stay in one particular venue that I loved and just see what happens and your band was the first one that came on and um, I was blown away everybody I stood with was blown away and just kind of instantly knew that you would be perfect for Greenbelt without really even knowing you or hearing much of your music i think it was quite a short set but then you just you just trusted us didn't you i feel like you put a lot of trust in us when you first came over to the to play our festival well you i mean i remember talking to you that night like, like you said it was brief because you had a lot of bands to see and you were kind of but uh i do remember like when we were done you you know you're just like hey you know that was cool uh, and, and you, you referenced the MC5, which is always, I mean, that, you know, you, you've, you've already endeared yourself to me at that <laughs> point. So, and then he handed me your card and stuff. And I'm like, I booked this festival, but, you know, I got to run, but, you know, give me a shout or whatever. And, um, and then when I looked, you know, when I got back, I guess probably back to the States, I, um, sent you an email and Googled the festival and everything and was, I mean, was really intrigued by, um, by Greenbelt, and um, it seemed like something that uh, I would be into, but that I, but also something that I'd never encountered anything like before. You know what I mean? So that, uh, so you know, that had my antenna up. And then the more that you and I communicated, I was like, ah, she's awesome. So I'm sure this will be this will be cool. <laughs> so it wasn't hard to it wasn't hard to trust. Do you remember your first experience of coming onto site and and what that was? I mean, it, it's it was kind of similar, I guess, to other um, festivals in Europe uh, where we've visited, in that it's like kind of in this beautiful rural area, and you roll up, and there's the fences and the you know the barricades and the people 
checking tickets and stuff like that. But I do just remember how just uh, how sweet everybody was that we encountered. You know, everybody was just extremely uh, sweet and uh, kind. And um, that that was the first thing that kind of set it apart, you know, there weren't a bunch of people like kind of blustering around. That's the first thing that, that left an impression. Well, you certainly left an impression on us, uh, Lee, the first time you played. Um, uh, I think, you know, you inspired a real sort of devoted uh, fan following amongst Greenbelters. In a sense, you, you're the band you're, uh, that we've been looking for for a long time. That sort of that, that voice from the States that, that um, just speaks it really truthful and raw. But I, I know that this summer hasn't been uh, hasn't been easy for you. And um, right. we, first of all, like one of the first things we just wanted to touch in on is how this summer's been because I know it's been really tough. Yeah, it has, man. It's um, you know, I guess there are all these um, problems and tensions, and you know, over the course of the Trump presidency, those tensions have floated more and more to the surface. You know what I mean? And, and they've become I think harder and harder for folks to ignore, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, since March, it, it's reached a fever pitch. We were supposed to go on tour in March, which we always do. We go to South by Southwest in Austin. You know, we'd started to hear some about coronavirus. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the press outlet democracy now in the, in the States. And they were, they were talking about it or, you know, considerably earlier than March and um, talking about how it was affecting folks in China and Europe and stuff. But um, as far as the governmental response and um, uh, the, you know, discussion and kind of broader U.S. media, I mean, we just didn't know what was going on. One of the guys in the band has, well, Adam and Blake are, are brothers, as Catherine knows, and uh, they have an immunocompromised family member. So once we started kind of thinking more about coronavirus and what it does and how it spreads and stuff, we, you know, we decided that they shouldn't go, you know, um, to Austin, but I was like, well, I'll still go and whatever. And, um, made it a couple of days into the tour and it became <laughs> apparent that that was not going to be a good idea. You know what I mean? And, um, it was kind of weird. It's, you know, I, I played the last show I played, it was in Memphis. I think it was like a Friday too. I mean, it was like a ghost town, you know? So that was kind of my first indication that things are, things are getting serious, you know? And what followed that is like, you know, like, like I said, it's just that U S government's continued is to prioritize, corporate profits over people, you know, over people's health, over people's housing, over people's wages. And, um, you know, and so we saw... that's not really these... a new thing, is it? But it, no. I guess that this is just um, put a, a looking glass over all of that. That's exactly right, you know, because all of a sudden we had all these folks who like, you know, I mean, our, ourselves as a band included who couldn't work, you know, I mean, that we were we'd been planning on that tour for a couple months is like, that would be our work for those three weeks or so. And, uh, you know, there's no support, you know, it's like so many Americans, um, can't get unemployment because they're employed in these sort of, um, ways that are becoming more and more 
common is where it's like part-time work or they're they're classified as independent contractors or whatever. So it's like, and in the U.S., traditionally, like you can't collect unemployment unless you've been laid off. You know what I mean? So, um, so it just, you know, it's left a lot of folks in the lurch and, um, <clears throat> and as you said, that's nothing new, but what is new or, or what was more, what, what is more the case than has been is just the numbers of people who weren't able to go to work, you know, who weren't able to, to make any money. Um, here in the UK, I mean, we all have our issues with the government. We all think that things could and should have been done differently. Right. But I think what we would have to say in comparison to the picture that you're painting is that there are some forms of support available. Like, not everybody's getting that support. And right. it's, sometimes it's not well targeted. But there are schemes in place. You know, we at Greenbelt, we benefited from the government furlough scheme where we could put some staff... Um, we could get their wages at least part paid and mm. that's being extended in certain areas. And yeah, it's not perfect by any means, but right. um, you know, and today we've, we've got around, we're speaking to you um, on Monday, the 12th uh, of October and the government's just announced a, a whole raft of grants uh, and funding for arts organizations up and down the country. Now it's not going to solve everything by any means, but sure. It, there, it, there's some form of effort there, but it doesn't feel like there's anything like that for you guys in the States from what you're saying. No, I mean, we had that, uh, <clears throat> every, every taxpayer got a $1,200 check, uh, in, I guess early in the summer. And then there, at first there was, it basically, um, the legislature, increased the unemployment payments that were going out to people and sort of loosened the requirements for being able to draw unemployment. But then the, you know, the Republicans um, slashed that. And as far as like grants and stuff like that go, there is this, the government is lending to uh, small businesses um, to where you, you can qualify for a, for a loan that I guess is, relatively low interest um but that the first uh sort of raft of those they sent out were gobbled up by like wells fargo and goldman sachs and all these massive corporations so that like actual yeah so like actual small businesses couldn't get hold of them and now they've they they kind of addressed that in the last month or two and um you know, but again, it's focused on, on businesses, you know what I mean? And what the business does with that money is up to them. You know what I mean? Like there's no incentive for them to, uh, or, 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 you know, regulation that they have to take that money and pay their employees. You know, they could just go buy a boat or whatever they want, you know? And then meanwhile, all the COVID economic, uh, ram ramifications are still happening where uh, I'm, I was talking to a, an organizer friend in Birmingham, Yesterday about, you know, the power company and the water utility are cutting people's lights and water off right wow. now, you know, and uh, <clears throat> so we're trying to organize something around that. Um, but it, it's just uh, it really does just feel like every every man for himself. It, it, it's 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 reaching a pretty shocking level for sure. And that's I mean, we qual the band qualified for a loan and I've been kind of, you know, kicking around whether or not I ought to take it because like right now we don't you know, when we're not on the road and when we're not 
I mean, we don't really spend that much money, so we don't really need that much money as a band. And we're all fortunate that we've all continued to have work through this thing. But, you know, the thing is, like, I don't know how long it'll be till we can go on tour in the U.S. again. Or if we do, I mean, a lot of venues that we play are in danger of closing, you know, um, because, because there aren't grants. is in danger of being lost by these venues being um, shut down or bands like yourself not being able to tour? It's been really hard for independent venues to stay afloat in the States the last, I'd say, I want to say like the last 10 years, there's been a kind of decline in numbers of independently owned small venues uh, because these like massive corporations have started buying it. Like I remember we maybe it was four or five years ago, we played in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, which is like the, it's, it's like the university town in Wisconsin and uh, it's the state capital, but it's not like a huge city or anything. Um, and we played this venue that, I mean, it's like really small. It's maybe a hundred capacity. I mean, it's a small place. And, uh, it was, it was a great time. And, uh, the next time we were going up through Madison, I, you know, hollered at our buddy and was like, Hey, do you want to do the show at the frequency again? And, uh, he was like, well, man, I got to tell you, they got bought out. And, uh, I was like, who did they get bought out by? He said, Live Nation, <laughs> which is, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's insane. It's like this massive, multinational corporation bought up a hundred person bar in Madison, Wisconsin, you know? And, uh, so that, I mean, that's been happening all over the country. You know, those venues run hand to mouth. They're like community, uh, supported, you know what I mean? Like, like whether, and here getting that kind of nonprofit grant status for venues, which I know is much more common in the UK to have something like that, where you get like cultural grants and stuff like that. Um, that's not really a thing here, but that's also like where the heartbeat of, you know, independent music is, you know, cause it's like, and, and those are the only places we play, you know, we steer clear of the ones that are owned by the, there's like live nation and AEG and, companies like that that are buying up all these venues uh, but but it is becoming harder and harder to do that you know like because like I said you might be used to playing a venue for years and then you come to find out that they got bought out or or shut down or whatever so um, and then with bands it's like you said or, or touring artists there's just I mean we just I've started having people hit me up about playing shows or that are like socially distant it's, I'm just I'm, you know, it's one thing for like me to put myself at risk, you know what I mean? To go into a crowd at a protest or something like that. But I feel weird about like inviting people into that. You know what I mean? Like using the band to kind of invite people into that. So, but at the same time, we miss it. I mean, we got together and recorded uh, a couple of three weeks ago. And that's the first time I'd seen Adam and Blake in. God, like, 
I think since February or something. And that's the longest I've been without seeing those guys in person in 10 years. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's, we're, it, we're all ready, uh, to get, to get back, you know, but, uh, just don't know when that's, uh, when that's going to be a safe, responsible thing to do, you know? Cause it feels like for me, that you are a live band you know that's that's where it happens for you guys yeah. yeah and even when you go into the studio i think Catherine and i were reading you you prefer just to play live as a band and just to get stuff down in one take and and see see what happens and so uh, you must really miss that because you know um th- th- that's where a large part of your identity is is in that live performance that's a great point and something that i've been sitting with the last few months is that i really do miss um playing with the guys i miss you know turning my guitar up and kind (laughs) of getting uh lost in that uh sort of catharsis you know but what the other weird thing i've experienced is that and where you were talking about the identity piece of that is that I've really been kind of uh, grateful, I guess, for um, this time of like forced grounding. You know what I mean? And the, and the fact that like uh, we can't play shows that I uh, um, because it's really given me the opportunity to. Yeah, kind of like focus on that question of, well, who am I really? Like, what is my identity, you know? And um, on a spiritual level, that's been pretty awesome, you know, <laughs> because uh, I guess ideally um, my identity doesn't really have to do with what I do or how I appear, or what people think about me or stuff like that. You know, it has to do with something much like deeper and more permanent, you know, than that. And, um, so that's actually like, I've been really grateful, uh, for the, and that's not something that I w- would have ever wished on myself or thought of doing because I mean, we tour a lot. It is kind of a distraction and it's kind of one of those things where I can, I think, uh, build my sense of, yeah, identity or accomplishment or productivity or stuff like that on this idea. Like, well, we're out there doing it, you know, and we're, you know, we, you know, got to book this tour and got to play these shows and got to get in the studio to do this and that and the other thing, you know. And one, one really cool benefit of it is like, man, I'm playing more music than I ever do when we're touring all the time, <laughs> you know, when we're touring all the time, I, play music for an hour a day and that's when we're on stage, you know, but, uh, have it, you know, being here, it's like, uh, I'll go and spend six or seven hours working on, working on songs just because I want to, just cause I love doing it, you know? And, um, there's no, you know, nobody sees me doing it. Nobody hears it. Nobody, you know, there it's, uh, and, um, so that's been a real kind of gift of it too, I think. It feels to me like you're the kind of artist that could, because of the because of the way you play, um, so energetically, and because of the lyrics and the reason that you're playing, which is to talk about, um, you know, the southern identity and the things that are going on in your life and your community, that you could get burnt out in the same way that any activist can get burnt out, and it feels like this has given you a chance to maybe fall in love with a bit of music. And I mean, how do you, how do you normally deal Mm. with that kind of burnout? 
the first time I re- really remember feeling burnout was in um, 2004 when uh, George Bush was running for reelection, you know, and the U.S. was embroiled in the, you know, war in Iraq, uh, which I and, you know, a lot of folks opposed, um, you know, you had the the sort of um, increase of the surveillance state, you know, with the NSA and the Patriot Act and Homeland Security and all this stuff. And um, you, you also had this like, you know, I, I, I grew up in church and by that time in my life, I'd you know, kind of said, screw it. You know what I mean? And, uh, but it really infuriated me that, um, Bush and the Republican party was increasingly like using Christianity and scripture to justify, I mean, war crimes, you know what I mean? And, um, that was the first time I feel like I got pretty involved in, um, activism and, and trying to, you know, get people registered to vote and stuff like that. And, um, I was living in New York at that time and the Republican convention was, was there in New York and there's this massive pro, I mean, the biggest protest I've certainly to that point I'd ever been a part of. And, uh, you know, I felt so fired up and energized and all that. And, um, man, when George Bush won that election, I just, uh, burnt out is <laughs> definitely the term for it. And I, I just remember kind of feeling extremely defeated, you know what I mean? And uh, just feeling like it was all kind of futile and nothing was going to get better and all that kind of stuff. And it took me a, a year or two to like come back from that. You know, I think over the years, like I've, I've, I've been curious as to how folks can continue staying engaged over long periods of time. I look to people like Angela Davis is one of my, you know, uh, favorite folks to study on or another one's, uh, Arundhati Roy. I, I love hearing them write or talk about how they, um, stay present, you know what I mean? And, and a lot of the, at least from what I can tell is like with, with something Angela Davis always talks about is that it's very important for her to nurture a vision of the future where everybody's free, you know, like that's very, and she has to like work on that every day. And she sort of has her methods of doing that. Like one for her is, is, um, and she's not a musician, but like she listens to music and dances. And like, that's something that kind of brings her, it, it kind of helps her imagine, I guess. And then she, she does like meditation practices and stuff. And Arundhati Roy, I hear the same thing in her writing that she's, she has that line that, you know, what, what is it? Something like, um, a new world is being born and on a quiet day you can hear it you breathe. Can hear it breathing, yeah. Yeah. I just love I mean it's like, wow, man, that's so powerful, you know. But it's like you can almost hear it breathing. You know, it's like it's not right there in your face. It's not a one election or a um or, you know, some legislative victory or some big epic thing. It's like it's a spirit, you know, it's moving. And that and that's kind of what Angela Davis when she says freedom is a constant struggle, you know, it's never, this isn't going to end, you know, it's like, and, and as a, you know, as a Christian, I relate to that concept, you know, which is that this isn't, we're, we're not going to get to a point of absolution and everything's um, perfect because, you know, we live in a 
world that's hurting and, and we're all flawed as people and all that stuff. But it's like there is something that guides us to be better to each other. There's a line in one of your songs on De-Reconstructed where you talk about uh, consider the weeds downtown and how they grow. Uh, I can't quite remember covering the parking lot. And yeah. uh, I think what I think that I hear a similar thing in your your attention to where you are, who you are, the place you live, the community where you live. Mm. That strikes me as um, a similar that you're finding in Angela Davis and Arundhati Roy. I think that people are probably finding in your work too, in that in that quiet attention to detail, that um, patience, observance, that not giving up, that determinedness to find beauty and hope where there seems like there might be none. You know, in downtown where all the jobs are gone, where everything's been tarmacked over, and yet you you know through your particular lens, you're finding a hopefulness there. I find those sorts of lines in your lyrics really, really very beautiful and hopeful and and, that, and that's something that i mean arundhati roy is i mean I, I just adore her work and her fiction writing um but because of what you're saying she's so immersed in a place and even though i mean arundhati roy is extremely critical of uh you know modi and the in the current indo climate and the situation in Kashmir and all that but what just you know breathes in her work is that she loves her people <laughs> you know what i mean she loves the people around her and the places around her and uh she wants to know them better you know i mean honestly there's a lot of passages of the bible that help me to think about the fact that we're all hu- we're all humans and we're all flawed we're all messed up we all have wrong-headed ideas about things we're all capable of being you know selfish and dishonest and manipulative and all these kinds of things but it's like that's not what that to me like that's not really what we're dealing with right now it's like what we're dealing with is systems of power that reward those hurtful human behaviors that we're all capable of you know what i mean and those systems don't really um they they serve a very small number of people you know what i mean and um and and exploit and disadvantage many 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 more you know so uh, that that's something that um i try to kind of turn my attention to is to those systems and even even to like and i'm not always like a big fan of like quoting Paul, honestly, but he does talk about how we're dealing with principalities and powers, you know, and that's something that I think about, you know, these days is that we're dealing with what we're not just dealing with a a bad, you know, it's like the thing, you know, I mean, that's something that we hear about is like, you know, cop, you know, these bad apple cops or whatever. And it's like, you know, the the problem isn't that a, a cop is a bad person. You know, it's like the problem is that our system of policing rewards authoritarian, violent, white supremacist, exploitative behavior. That That's what it's set up to do. And that has nothing to do with whether, you know, the people riding in the in the cop car are good or bad people. That doesn't have anything to do with it. 
It seems like America is becoming, is losing or doesn't have a lot of those human values that in some ways America was based upon, like that idea of Christianity, for, for America to be such a Christian community, nation, but to really be lacking those intrinsic values that make us all human, come together, look after each other. The the pastor at my church a year or two ago had a sermon that I thought was brilliant where she was talking about how it's sort of like the decline in um, people who who respond to surveys as Christians or as believing in God at all, and how you know in Europe that it's you know I guess like the unchurched numbers are much higher than they are in, in the U.S. But in the U.S. they're still you know church, people who attend church frequently or profess faith in God are on the decline. And she was saying how a lot of, you know, she's sure that we've all heard sermons (laughs) or, uh, you know, video clips of pastors bemoaning that, you know, and saying like, oh, God, we got to save, you know, the their faith or whatever. And she was saying that, like, she actually is like kind of excited by that. And um, and she looks forward to the time potentially that the church can be divested of power. You know, because at this point in the U.S., they're hand in glove. You know what I mean? And they have been for a long time that, you know, it. I mean, a lot of there are lots of reasons to go to church in the U.S. other than trying to make a spiritual connection <laughs> or trying to be in community with other people or trying to learn how to you know live better. Any of that stuff. There's lots of other reasons to go. And uh, a lot of them have to do with pretty, you know messed up things, you know, you know, where we're from, it's like, if you don't go to, if you're not a church member, you're weird. You're an outcast. You're looked down on, you're questioned. For those of us who've seen you play live, we would, we'd say that there's a gift. Do you feel like your music, has it been with you a long time? And does it feel like a gift of sorts? You know, I've, that is something else that I've been thinking about the last few months. Um, it for when all I guess it's like when uh the first month or two of COVID when it, all my sort of well laid plans got you know mixed up and th- and this is before the uprisings around uh, George Floyd's murder um and Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia as well um. I, I started kind of freaking out. You know what I mean? I was like, what am I doing? What's going on? You know, cause we were, we were, we had just started making a record and we were supposed to go back in April, uh, to do some more recording and all that was just, you know, kicked down the field indefinitely. And, um, I was feeling kind of panicked. Uh, I was feeling very panicked and freaked out and all that stuff. And, also just had a lot of time to myself, you know, uh, like, like all of us did. And, um, I was trying to find some comfort and what I did is what I do sometimes when I'm freaked out is, uh, go and go off by myself somewhere and just sing old hymns and gospel songs that my grandparents did in their church. And, uh, and it just kind of calms me down, you know, and um, it was such a 
And then one day I was doing that in the backyard, and we have a neighbor a couple doors down, and uh, I was, you know, I just sung a song. And our our backyards are kind of, you know, they're more spread out here, and um, there's like woods back and a couple fences. So I mean, it's pretty private where back where I am. But I looked over and our neighbor a couple doors down was like leaning against the fence, drinking a beer, you know, like obviously like what, you know, listening to me. And, uh, I was just like waved at him. And he was like, don't let me stop you, man. Keep going. You know? And, uh, it occurred to me then that it's like other people might get something out of this. You know what I mean? But, but where it started from was the idea that this is a, this is good for me. You know what I mean? Like it, just for me alone in my backyard, this is doing me a lot of good, you know? And, um, so, uh, my wife and I like put together, a, we were doing like weekly, uh, gospel hours, you know, there for a couple months. Um, and that was really powerful, um, to just have people that I've, met from all over the place, just kind of interacting with each other, whether people I met through the band or like extended family or, uh, you know, friends of friends or whatever. And, um, it just, you know, that, that felt really good. And I thought about something my grandmama told me cause she was a choir director and she was, she retired when she was 89 <laughs> as a choir director. And, uh, she told me once that, uh, <clears throat> Music is something that you will always have, you know, and nobody will ever be able to take that from you. You will always have that gift of music. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, I've really been feeling that the last few months that that's that is a place of like refuge for me. I think that um, a lot of people would find your music a place of refuge when they're when they're hearing you play live because you're. I think that you're connecting with people's soul in a way that that doesn't always happen in everyday life. <laughs> I mean, you're a great musician without any of, you know, your activism that goes along with it. Have you ever, especially being from the South and American, I guess that if you just forgot all of those political parts of your music, then actually you could maybe be looking at a music career which could <laughs> fund you, which could be paying you a lot of money. <laughs> you know, have you ever, does that ever come up in your, in your thoughts? I had a pretty intense experience maybe, I guess it was about 10 years ago. It was like, well, it was maybe 2009, something like that. And um, I'd been playing with bands. Uh, I, I had a band of my own, and then I joined this band that was like my favorite band. And... Um, played with them for a couple of years and they were all a good bit older than me and decided to like break up the band basically. And at that time, very randomly, this guy that I knew who used to live in California, um, was like, man, I got this call from this friend of mine. Uh, and he's trying to find songwriters, uh, for this label, 
for for the uh, yeah for this label to sign to this label, and there he called me to ask if I knew of anybody because they're coming to like audition people in Nashville, and uh, I was like, okay, I mean, I I don't have anything else going, you know, there's no harm in doing it. And uh, so we went up there and it was weird. And that's not something I'd ever done before since where it's like you. I mean, it's like you see in a movie where we walked into like the lobby of a hotel and there's like a line of people in their like outfits, you know, like doing vocal warm ups in the hallway and, you know, tuning their guitars and stuff. And uh, I was like, this is weird. It, it, it weirded me out. But we. uh we went in there and like did this audition. I just played a couple of my songs and, um, and then that was pretty much it. We just went back home and, um, it just so happened a couple, maybe three months later, he called me and was like, man, I heard back from them and they want to like fly you out to LA and like, you know, they, they want to, you know, get you to do some demos with this producer and stuff. And I was like, what? Anyway, over the, to kind of give the cliff notes version over the course of a few months, um, it, it, it wound up to where they put a contract in front of me. This, this big label is, it was a subsidiary of a major label. And, uh, it had in this contract that like I would be a full-time musician for the first time in my life. You know, at that time I was, I, I was doing editing work. And before that I'd done, construction work and just, you know, different stuff. And, uh, but it's like also in the contract was, um, these stipulations that the label had creative control over what was put out. You know what I mean? So they're like, if I were to write a song and they were like, ah, we don't like what you're saying in that song, then I'd have to go write them another song that they liked kind of thing, you know? And, um, it was something that I talked to a lot of my friends about and um, just getting people's counsel on. And a lot of my friends were like, man, do it. I mean, you know, you're never going to have that. I mean, that's not an opportunity that just comes along, you know. Um, but I just felt weird about it. You know what I mean? I didn't feel I just had like a gut feeling that was a little strange. And this guy <clears throat> who had produced our, um, well, he wound up producing glory fires albums. Uh, Tim Kerr who's like a old school punk guy in Texas. Um, he like asked me, he, he kind of told me what I needed to hear, you know, which is basically that he just asked me like, why do you make music? You know? And I was like, shit, man. Uh, I guess because I love it and I, you know, want to make something that's, you know, beautiful and powerful and stuff like that and whatever. And uh, he's like, well, do you make music to, you know, get a paycheck and tell people that you're a professional musician? And I was like, no, I guess I don't, you know. And uh, just thinking about it that way and the fact that if I were to sign this contract, I wouldn't be able to put out the music that I thought was beautiful and powerful necessarily. I just wouldn't be able to. And uh, 
that freaked me out, and I definitely went through a. That's the first first and only panic attack I've ever had in my life was during that time of like trying to decide what to do because literally almost everybody I knew was like, "Dude, are you fucking crazy? Just do it," you know. And uh, but that those conversations with Tim, and then this idea too of that um, you know, it's like I, you know, I, that that also kind of turned me more and more into this idea of like kind of like we were talking, talking about earlier with coronavirus is like, who am I really? And what am I trying to do? Really turning my attention more to the way I'm doing things and my motives in doing things is much more rewarding than getting what I want. You know what I mean? And, uh, so that's, so yeah. So I, I told those folks, no. And, um, from that point, I've never regretted it one time ever. You know what I mean? And it's like when I'm on top of a, you know, when, when we're, you know, sleeping on somebody's, you know, cat piss covered floor, <laughs> you know, and, or, or if I'm, you know, on top of a ladder between tours or whatever, I've never once regretted that decision, you know, and, um, uh, I'm, I'm really thankful for the guidance I got through it, you know, and, and the fact that I was, able to make the decision that I did. Um, and, um, you know, because, and, and, and that's kind of the thing, like I'm talking about, like to me over these last few months, just being able to sit here and like work on lyrics and, you know, read art that inspires me or, you know, encounter art that inspires me and try to like wrestle with what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like, man, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Like what a gift that is, you know, to just be able to do that. And, um, yeah, but, to your point, there are plenty of times where I'm like, fuck, man, I wish there was more people at this show. You know, shit, I wish we, you know, I wish we had more gas money, shit. I, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. But, um, but, uh, that stuff that is ultimately like outside of my control, too. You know what I mean? So, and those few um, people at your show, they're having an incredible experience and a very personal experience. I know that you go and talk to most people after your show and are jumping in the audience with them along as you're playing. <laughs> like, you know, that's pretty yeah. special. And it's special to me, you know, and it's, it's special to Adam and Blake, too. And that's what, you know, that's what keeps us doing it. You know, is we just genuinely love doing it and there is a feeling of connection and catharsis and um that you know that that uh yeah that i wouldn't that i wouldn't trade for anything wanted to say you know in these next few weeks as it heads towards the election we're with you um, um you're in our thoughts and our prayers and it's gonna we- go all right isn't it lee it's gonna go all right <laughs> right 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 i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i really don't i mean i was you know we i mean that's been the topic of discussion we just you know but, but I, I guess what i'm focused on is like Whatever happens in the election, it doesn't stop what's happening amongst the people, you know, and that's what's so inspiring to me right now is that like the people are awakening to their power, you know, in in the U.S. Mm. Yes. And that is so I mean, and that's what it's about. You know what I mean? Like that's where every every great, you know, stride forward 
in freedom and justice and and equality has always come from the people. You know, it's never come from like a king or a, or a president or, a, uh, you know, whatever. It's like it comes from the, the people demanding it, you know. And um, we're man, we're seeing that on such a massive scale. The murder of George Floyd was so egregious, um, coupled with the fact that people didn't have a place to go, <laughs> you know, the next day, uh, because they were out of work, um, just kind of led everybody into the, into the streets. And I've never, you know, I've been like, <clears throat> I live in Atlanta and I've been going to, you know, anti-police violence, you know, anti-racist rallies here the whole time I've lived 10 years. And, um, you know, I, I know and follow the work of a lot of activists and organizers here in town and that, first rally after George Floyd was killed um, wasn't organized by any of those people. You know what I mean? Like any of those long-term local activists, it just, I I saw, I read about it from like six college students, all black women who uh, just like started, who just put it up on their Instagram, you know, and they all had like 200, 300 followers. And um, a friend of mine and I went to the park where the rally was, and there were like 6,000 people there. You know what I mean? And um, it's it just tapped into this deep um, anger and uh, demand for justice that so many of us feel, and, and, and black folks in America in particular. This buddy of mine in Birmingham and some other organizers, there were several of us, maybe seven to ten, Back in January, February, we're planning a rally <clears throat> around the uh, this Confederate monument in the kind of big park in the middle of Birmingham, and um, we were we were planning this rally that we were kind of keeping under wraps um, to to take down this monument, and and um, we we talked about it, and we were kind of scheming and coming up with ideas and all this kind of stuff. And it was within a week or two of uh, George Floyd's murder that uh, a, a crowd of protesters in downtown Birmingham, that there's this like local comedian who was uh, one of the organizers. And he was like, you know what, let's go down to Lynn Park and take down that damn statue. And just like that you know, 400 people appeared around the statue with spray paint and chains and somebody showed up with a truck and a toe strap to try and pull this thing down. And uh, it's just like, man, that is so awesome. It's like, that is what, you know, and, and me and my buddy were texting while that was going on. I was here in Atlanta. He was there. And uh, I was like, man, this is a thousand times better than what we were trying to come up with, you know, because this is just the people doing what the people do, you know, <laughs> when when uh, when they recognize their power, you know, and uh, God, it was so beautiful. We were my my wife, Dawn, and I were sitting there like watching a live stream of it from Atlanta with tears in our eyes because it's just like this is. I, I, I mean, to see this group of intergenerational, you know, interracial and multi-ethnic and people of all genders and sexualities 
destroying this symbol that is uh, that is one of oppression in their hometown. You know what I mean? They're like, this is our town, and we're getting this thing out of there. Is I mean, man, just gives me chills. You know, and and that's going to keep happening regardless of who's in the White House. You know what I mean? That can't be stopped. You know. How can Greenbelters connect with you, support you, follow you, really get behind Lee Baines the Third and the Glory Fires and all the good that you're doing? How can we still support that in these strange and distant times? I guess just holler, you know, holler at us and you know, listen to the tunes. That'd be great. You know, uh, we we look forward to like seeing everybody in in person again. Uh, but yeah, for now, man, I'd say just that carrying. The tunes along with you would would uh I guess that's the that's that's why we do it you know. Thank you for your wisdom and your time, Lee. It's been amazing. No, thank y'all, man. I <clears throat> love y'all, and it's great to see you. And thank you for having me. And sorry again about <clears throat> about my uh, about my <laughs> no. uh, tardiness. <laughs> It's the only it's the only cliche that we can pin on you today, Lee. That you are a typical musician. That's right. <laughs> very much. Everything so. else about you is very atypical. <laughs> no. Thank you. We uh, we will man. keep listening to the tunes. We'll Thanks, point y'all. people to them. We'll spin some of your music into the podcast as well, if we may. And um, yeah, of course. We, we love what you do and um, keep being who love you are. Love what y'all do. And y'all, please do the same. Can't wait to see you in person. Yeah, missing you. <laughs> Lovely to speak Miss- to you. So that was an, an amazing conversation for episode one of our second series with Lee Baines. How did you find that, Catherine? Yeah, it was lovely. It almost felt like we were in the room with him. He's got that lovely, relaxed way about him. Uh, so just sort of chatty and conversational. You know, also very positive. I mean, especially now in America, like there's ways in which that you can be quite negative about the situation. And he reminded me... He kind of echoed a lot of stuff that people in the first series were saying about how change only happens when people go and demand it. Like, he doesn't think that change is going to happen completely from the American political system. And I guess from what we've seen over the years, like there could be some truth in that. But we see that people going into the streets, taking down those statues, demanding for change, the more that happens the more political leaders will listen. They have to listen. They've they've listened before in the past, and that's how massive change has occurred. Yeah, and I certainly will have his words echoing around in my head and my heart as as the um, as the US elections unfold. And I'll be thinking about those things that he's talked about, about people power, about the things that he's seeing on the ground around workers' rights, around people... Yeah, rising up and demanding change. It it felt exciting and it felt hopeful chatting to him at this time. I remember like a few years ago, we were chatting in the office when Trump first got into power and and everything that was happening around then. And I think it was George Monbiot that wrote an article about how maybe things needed to get worse before they get better. Maybe we need to burn the whole thing down and, and build up from the ashes. And feels like that's starting to happen. That's that and that. That happening is about it getting so bad for people that they have to go and start demanding a different future. I like very much as well the way that Lee talked about his music making and his artistry 
in a time where he hasn't been able to be out performing or rehearsing or recording. And the fact that he's found real solace in being able to work at his music for much more time than he usually would have. And he's found a real a real joy in that, in the process of it. Yeah, I I think that I have listened to a lot more music. I've really found my love for music again, like not playing it, but, you know, getting new records and just discovering new artists. That's really got me through, actually, this time. I think Lee or you described his music as a, a, like being like a refuge or music more generally being a refuge. And that seemed to really chime for you, Um uh, having been at, at his gigs as well, that, that music can be a refuge in difficult times. Yeah, one of my favourite films, I'm going to misquote this, but one of my favourite films is a film called Almost Famous. And at the very start of this film, this older sister gives a younger brother her record collection. And she said, she says something like, whenever you're feeling lonely, put a record on and you'll be with your friends. And for me, music is kind of like that. Good music is like that. Lee's music is like that. When you're feeling lonely or when you're feeling like your opinions you have about the world or the way you see the world is different to how everybody else sees the world and you're really lonely in that view. And then you listen to somebody like Lee talking about that it makes you feel less alone. It makes your feelings feel validated. It makes you feel hopeful. And I think that his music does that for a lot of people. I see it when I when I go to one of his gigs, you know, I see the community that's created. Yeah, I mean, you describe being in his gigs as a bit like being at uh, the sort of church that you'd love to go to. Yeah, I would love a church to be like a good gig venue. And yeah, I mean, that's what it is. You have, you know, he talks in between his songs. It's like preaching. His songs are like preaching. The energy that he creates among everybody that's watching his gigs, you know, he's jumping into the audience. The guitarist is throwing his guitar to somebody else to jump up on stage and become the new guitarist of the band. You know, like <laughs> it's, it's something is created in that moment which brings people together, which makes them positive, which makes them want to leave that venue and do good things for their community and for their country. And for me, that's, that's a church, isn't it? Lee himself, he describes that experience as being incredibly important for him and the band too, as that as that's you know where they feel most alive and they come through and and they get that strength and that hope to carry on. He used uh, the word that it's almost like a, an act of catharsis doing those gigs, those live gigs, and, and creating that community vibe, and that really really chimed for me because for me too that live music experience at its best is is it like you're describing it's like church almost at its best it's it's like an act of catharsis it's something that unifies and unites humanity and gives it the strength and hope and the vision uh, that we all need to carry on and, and work together and love one another so i know that sounds like almost as if i'm going back to the 60s and becoming a hippie but i think let's that do it that is what that's what music does <laughs> i mean as you've said in previous episodes Catherine, you've already got the outfit <laughs> fears for the future Paul is that we won't have artists like Lee Baines the third and the glorifiers I remember reading um I think I was reading a, a Patti Smith book and she said um who, who's that book Patti Smith who, uh, pa- Patti, oh, Smith. Patti Smith yeah I wondered how long it would be first episode, episode. one 
<laughs> and um, she said it was in the 70s and she said like this is the end of rock and roll she said I think she said that in the 70s and I've seen obviously you know working a little bit in the music industry I've seen the the change that's happening in the music industry and how artists like Lee Baines it becomes more difficult for them to play with that kind of integrity because you know he talked a little bit about uh, a company called Live Nation that are buying up a lot of um small music venues in America um this company is massive and they operate in the UK too and we know them of course don't we Paul because they are also buying up a lot of festivals. They own artist agencies. They own ticketing companies, secondary ticketing companies, staging, security, venues. They kind of are taking over a massive portion of the music industry. And so that, that means that they get to control what kind of artists people are hearing. I've been thinking a lot this year, that you know, um, various ones of us are struggling to different degrees with this whole idea of lockdown but in a sense what live nation are doing what any huge corporation are doing um in a free market economy is they they locked they lock things down mm. in favor of their own activity and that that feels you know we all know what it feels like to have that, that our freedoms curtailed and to not be able to go out and see our friends in in a in a different sort of economic sense, what Live Nation are doing to the live music scene is is they're locking it down. It feels like a, a a huge big sort of beast that's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and eating everything up inside. And I think the artists that are going to suffer from that, I mean, the audience is going to suffer from that because you're you're not going to get to hear a variety of artists. You're going to get to hear the the artists that are going to be supported are going to be the ones that you're going to hear and artists like Lee Baines that, you know, wants to be supporting grassroots venues and wants to be supporting independent labels. The only thing that the audience can do, I mean, we have the power, you know, by looking into, you know, who owns my festival, who owns this venue, by giving money directly to the artist, by buying merchandise from the artist, by buying tickets for artists that are trying to do something a little different. That's how we change it. And we at Greenbelt will try and do our best and play our part uh, by remaining fiercely independent and doing our utmost to support artists who are really, really trying to make their way outside of that big sort of corporate machine. As far as we're able, we'll, we'll try and do our best. think about when Lee talked about his pastor at church looking forward to the day when churches can be divested of their power yeah I mean I really really liked that really really liked it and I have to say that you know personally I really agree with that and I, I like to think that at Greenbelt you know Greenbelt isn't a church although lots of people say oh like it's like my church but we have the privilege and the luxury in a way of of being able to sort of prod and poke the church to say, hey, come on, um, what do you think you're doing here? And our hope is that we can model something that um, isn't wrapped up in all those power games and that actually provides people a lot more inclusivity and access to be part of a community that they're really desperate to belong to and be part of. But sometimes the power plays and the institutionalized structures of the church just don't don't work for them. Yeah, some, sometimes, you know, institutions that have been around for a long, long time, 
um, or any organisations that have been around for a long, long time, they get into habits and ways of working and changing that can be very scary. Sometimes you don't even realise that you need changing when you're in the middle of that. Like, you know, even even at Greenbelt, when we, when we, you know, the dark days when we lost all of our money pretty much in 2014, the luxury that afforded us to do was to go, all right, we're, we're rock bottom. How do we build up something new? Like, that's a great opportunity. And it feels like maybe that's needed in some churches. I think that when there's so much vested, so much history, so many buildings, so many ways of doing things, it is very difficult to unthink that and do something new, do something fresh. Um, it's really difficult. And, you know, don't get me wrong, uh, Greenbelt, and, and we're not here to slag off the church. Um, there are absolutely wonderful, wonderful people um, working for and worshipping in and belonging to the, the church up and down the country. People who've changed our lives who who make all the difference to the Greenbelt Festival. You know, as what don't get me wrong, but I think it's just all of us have a duty, I think, to critique and think about the structures that we will operate in all of the time. So we hope that you've enjoyed episode one of Somewhere to Believe in series two. And we'd love you to let us know what you think. So get in touch with us on... Well, you can email us at stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. And we love getting those emails. On social media, our handles are... We are at Greenbelt on Twitter. And we are at Greenbelt Festival on Facebook and Instagram. We've also... If you go to greenbelt.org.uk forward slash podcast, you can sign up for a dedicated e-news that comes out with each podcast episode. And on our website, greenbelt.org.uk, you can also sign up for our more general e-news called Dispatches, when you'll get all the latest festival news and what we're up to here at Greenbelt. And we, we hope you'll be back for next week's episode when we'll be talking to comedian Josie Long. So that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our guest, Lee Baines, for talking to us and for letting us use his brilliant track, I Can Change, as our theme tune. And to Daisy Ware Jarrett for producing us and making this all happen. And for Paul T in the staff office for helping us with uh, framing this episode. And also, we're really pleased that Josh and Jake on the Volunteer Recorded Talks team have helped us polish all this audio up and put it all together. You know what's quite interesting, Paul? Mm-hmm. Lee Bain's track that we use for this podcast is called I Can Change. And he made a lot of merchandise with people around the Confederate statue in Lynn Park with the lyrics I Can Change around it. That was his merchandise for that album, for that song. And during the recording of this podcast over the summer, that statue has actually been taken down. So change has happened. Change can happen. Yeah, you better believe it. Good story.
Some 